0: Use your pew Bibles if you desire, page 12, those are the, the, blue, the blue books at the, in your seats in front of you, uh, page 12, Genesis chapter 15, and verses 1 through 6 for our Old Covenant reading. Abraham, the patriarch, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the patriarchs, Abraham being the first. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verses 1 through 6, you have a statement of Abraham's faith, which is used by the Apostle Paul as a model for our own faith. Okay? Romans, our Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, and that uh, was a, a battle, basically, that came about. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision. Abram would become Abraham, he would become called a multitude, father of a multitude of nations, but for now he is Abram. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You've given me no offspring, but a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Because remember, God had promised him he'd have children. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so... Shall your offspring be? And he believed in the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. He couldn't see it, but he believed it. And then John chapter 6 and verses 25 through 29. And that's page 1059 and following in your Pew Bibles. John six twenty five to twenty nine, page one thousand fifty nine and one thousand sixty. Jesus has gone across the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are. Wanting to follow him, you'll find out why in the message. Uh, so they find Jesus on the other side of the sea. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Because they didn't know how he got from one end to the other. Well, he had done that actually by walking on water. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, truly. And when you read Truly, Truly's, and the New Testament in particular, pay very close attention, because verily, verily, this is a, an especially important truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal, uh, probably both by saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and demonstrating to the multitudes that he is nothing less than God. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We'll look at the latter part of that a little bit later. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you respond by saying, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. I'm trying to explain to Nan, who is from China, what Labor Day is. I gave my usual quip that uh, Labor Day is a holiday in which we celebrate labor by not working. <laughs> and uh, and that really is what it is, actually, at least what it's supposed to be. But it's the end of the summer, it's a break, and it is good to get a break. And really, we should appreciate Labor Day because it actually originated over 100 years ago as an, an appreciation... Uh, for work that was done by people out in the fields, out in the trades, people that were working in the cities. It was actually initiated by the, the growing labor movement of the time. And we ought to appreciate that for this reason. Labor is a creation ordinance. When God created man and put him in the garden, he said we're to rest one day in seven. But he also said we are to labor six days. And Adam and Eve were to labor in the garden, and their work was holy. And so I I think it's fitting that for the Christian in particular, Labor Day has a a real significance to us. However, and here's the downside, especially in Long Island, there's a very, very topsy-turvy view of labor. It's very much an upside-down view of what labor is of most importance. And the tragedy is that that wrong view of labor ends not only in tragedy but ultimate tragedy, reading about the increased suicide rate in the United States, and everybody trying to understand why it's affecting people in every age category. What we're dealing with today in a topsy-turvy world, if you don't look at world work properly, you're really looking at a form of suicide. very sobering way to begin the message. Here's what we're going to do today. This is in John chapter 6. We're looking at the most important work and why. Okay. So here's the outline. Number one, I want to give you some background to this text. As you read chapters 5 and 6, there are certain words and concepts that recur, that are, that are pretty much the drive for not only the, the question of the multitudes to Jesus, but Jesus' response. So the background is very important. Um, And then second is the lesson, which is the most important work. And the third is the reason why. And we often hear about the most important work, even though it may not be put like that. You very rarely hear about why it's the most important work. And so we want to look at those three things and and what we have before us this morning in this text. Okay. Number one, the background to John chapter 5 and verses 25 to 29. John, there's a reason why when a person is seeking the Lord, is wanting to grow in the Christian faith, there's a reason why it's commonly commonly recommended that that people read the Gospel of John. Um, They say about John, elephants can drown in it and children can swim in it. And I guess the idea with a spiritual child is they can swim in John and not get drowned in all of the heavy-duty concepts that are embedded in every chapter. Uh, but, but the reason why people are urged to read the Gospel of John is because John is about faith. John chapter 20, these, J- John says a whole lot of things that, that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. In fact, he said many books couldn't contain them. Because Jesus was incarnate miracles, incarnate God. Everything that he did displayed God and in, in his works. And John said you couldn't even contain those things in many books. But he said these things are written, what you read in, in John's 21 chapters, these things are written that you might believe, that you might believe in the Son of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing you might have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of of the Gospel of John. And in, in chapter five, leading obviously into chapter six, there's kind of a cascade of all of this. Jesus is doing signs, and he'll continue to do them. He changes he changes the, the water into wine at the wedding at Galilee. He heals a man. He heals a, a man who'd been an invalid from youth at the pool. And these are these are signs because they point forward to the eternity, the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the time that there will be no more suffering, and no more pain, no more sorrow. These are signs of what is to come. And the, the people are captivated by these. The religious leaders, not so much. The religious leaders who knew the Old Testament, those who prided themselves in their background, they are not happy with the Lord Jesus, and so Jesus in John chapter 5 gives the first of what are two pretty lengthy lectures or sermons or messages. And in, in John chapter 5, Jesus deals with their, their, the way they had wrongly understood the Old Testament. Three powerful text, verse 39 in John chapter 5. He says, You search, you, you keep doing, this is your work, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's a really sobering statement. You realize Bible studies can be dangerous? You read books that come out, uh, what the Bible says about male leadership, what the Bible says about femininity, uh, what the Bible says about leadership in general, what the Bible says about politics, what the Bible says about diet, what the Bible says about health. And it's not that you can't gain things that would be helpful from here. You're dealing with the Word of God. But if you miss Jesus in these things, you've missed the heart of what the Scriptures are all about. I think one of the most sobering sets of books that in, in many ways is, is a phenomenal study. The Doctrine of God uh, by Stephen Charnock, two rich volumes. Very rarely is Christ mentioned as the one who is God Himself, who reveals all of these things personally and perfectly. I mean, he's de- dealt with, but it's more God in the abstract and Christ as an illustration. Rather than God in Christ, who's the subject. So you see how easy it is for this to happen, and Jesus so is dealing with, with the way the religious leaders, they weren't so much captivated with the signs, but the faith they lacked. And then as you come to chapter six and verses one through three, now things change a little bit. Jesus goes away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now he's with the multitudes. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And he would, of course, feed them, and he would walk on the water. Not technically signs, but they were the miracles that showed that he is God. But the text in John chapter 6 Rather hauntingly, verse 2, because they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, which was the multiplying the loaves and and the fishes, that's where they went awry. Religious leaders searched the scriptures, they missed Jesus. Jesus. The multitudes saw the signs, and they began to relish them. Senses, brothers and sisters, I don't mean senses up here that you think, but sense of sight, sense of smell, sense of taste, sense of hearing, sense of touch. These things can really make you miss the point. And well, this can actually come even with sacraments, where you look at bread and wine in itself or the water of baptism in itself. And those things, even though God ordained them, they can make you miss the point. The term that was used years ago, rice Christians. Rice Christians were Christians that became Christians and professed to be Christians because they got rice from the missionaries. And so you had rice. Christians was the term that was used. But that kind of thing is true in in, in every age. Today, you see what was common in Jesus' day. So much that passes at worship, it's entertainment, folks. It's the entertainment of the music. It's the entertainment of the coffee bar that you come to first. It's the entertainment of the message that's given. It's the show. It's the show. And it appeals to the senses. It it makes you happy. It makes you feel good. It makes you, you look at what's going on on the stage. And it captivates you. Well, that's no different than it was in Jesus' day. And it captured the multitudes. Consumerism. What I can get out of the Christian faith in the more crass sense. And some of the mega churches, you can get your oil changed in your car when you're at worship. So, so there's that reason for coming. So there's those kinds of things that, that occur in every age in the Christian church. Senses can make you miss the point. One old writer, I, I changed some of the words uh, to make it more relevant to our day, but he says the same thing he did. He said to be always entertaining people. And catering to their needs in the name of the gospel is the surest way to raise up a generation of hypocrites and to influence lasting and to inflict lasting harm on souls. Wow. And and so this is the milieu in which Jesus ministered. Now notice notice Jesus' emphases. Go back to chapter 5 for a minute with, with the religious leaders. In verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention to this, he says to them. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Wow! Jesus says that the greatest enemy that faces us in a fallen world is death and judgment. The greatest need to over, way to overcome that is what is called life. And Jesus has the audacity to say whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that is his Father, has eternal life and doesn't come into judgment. Wow. And you see why believing in him is so important, And, and, he, and he digs that in even farther. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Isn't that something? You can hear the Word of God now and reject it as if you didn't hear it at all. But he says, no, there's going to come a day. Everybody's going to hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, what a statement. Jesus says, I'm speaking to you now. And I call you to believe it. And, of course, many don't. The only statement of Jesus marveling at something is he marveled at the unbelief of the people. And Jesus says, just remember, there will come a day when I'll be speaking again, and even the dead who are in the graves will hear my voice, and they'll come forth. That's how powerful his word is. So he's calling again in no uncertain terms to to believe in him. Verses 39 and 40, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. To believe is to come. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you don't, another word for faith, receive me. Jesus, I do now receive him. Okay? If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote of me, if you don't believe his writings, how you will believe in my words. It's interesting here, see, Jesus, everybody believes, folks. Everybody has faith in something. But the issue is, is it a horizontal faith, something that is in the creature or that comes from the creature, or is it vertical, something that comes from God? And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. That's horizontal. When you receive, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, if your faith is only horizontal, You may congratulate yourselves that in the horizontal realm you're thinking alike and you're believing alike, but you miss the fact that real faith is vertical. Or to put it another way, it's not your senses uh, that are to drive your faith. Those are external things. But it's the heart. It's something internal that is driven by God himself. Because God... God wants nothing less than the core of your being, and he has a right to that. If you'd have no other gods before you, that means God must be everything, right? And so Jesus is in various ways heaping on the meaning of of faith in him. So, So here he's doing his works, and people are either looking at the works themselves and being the rice Christians of that generation, or they're not paying much attention to the works, and they still don't believe him, but they have the scriptures. So there's the, there's the background, okay? It's works and it's faith or unbelief. Now in verses 28 and 29 in chapter 6, now Jesus gives the lesson which is the most important work. They say to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And and there's a lot of it's very interesting the way you look at this because they've seen Jesus and they've heard him say he's doing the works of God, and it could be that here their own fallenness is is coming through. Yeah, how can, how can we do these things? How can we do these really neat signs that you're doing? That that's that's a possibility, but I, but I think more of what's in view here is, Lord, what are the kinds of things that we can do that will be pleasing to God? You're clearly pleasing to God in your works. We want to be pleasing to God as well. And so they phrase it in this question, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, there's right and wrong works, brothers and sisters. Wrong works are where you think somehow you're going to merit your own salvation. Well, if I do these things and stop doing these things, and I've got enough of the good things that I do, and too few of the bad things that I shouldn't do, then I guess I'm going to be okay. Then I'm doing the works of God. That's a very common way to respond to these things, and it's the way of merit. It's the way we respond naturally. I find it so interesting when when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and again, he's a teacher of the Jews. He's supposed to understand this. Uh, but, but he doesn't, and, uh, and uh, Nicodemus is speaking to Jesus, and Jesus cuts to the chase. And he says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus isn't quite what to do, sure to do with this. Jesus says, uh, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, or you've got to be born from above, all right? It's, 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 it's you've got to, something new has to happen to you and it has to come from heaven. What does Nicodemus say? How? can a man go into his mother's womb so that he can be born again? (laughs) He's so befuddled because he thinks the way we do. How can I do the things that I am supposed to do in order that I might please you? That's the way of merit, and that's the wrong way to look at works. Don't let this, though, make you rule out action in the Christian life. Some of the words for the Christian life strive to enter in at the straight or the narrow gate. Run the race set before you. Fight the good fight. The kingdom of God, Matthew 11, interesting text. The kingdom of God is taken by violence. Not physical violence, but in violence there's energy. There's a whole being involved. And, and the righteous take it by force. And when, when our catechism... Uh, explains it in the section on what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin. He's not talking about what happens when by grace we believe in Christ and we're justified and adopted and so on. He says, no, what, what does God require of us in this life that we might be saved, escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ. There's a reason that's first. Repentance unto life, and true repentance, folks, flows from faith in Christ. With the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. You want to live a saved life? You give attention to the Word of God as it focuses on Christ. You pray. You're coming before the Lord all the time. You are in fellowship with other believers in Christ. You partake of the sacraments of, of the Lord's Supper after being baptized. So so those are the diligent, that's the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us uh, the benefits of redemption. So... Don't be quick to criticize the people in their response. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Don't condemn that question. Would that more people did ask that question in our day. What's necessary for us to be pleasing to God? And notice that that while Jesus marveled at unbelief, he takes all that we read of in John chapter 6 to the very end of the chapter to speak to them because in itself that really is a good question the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit's at work in the multitudes and the people say what must we do to escape this wicked and perverted generation the jailer in Philippi what must I do do to be saved. And there's some reform people that are bothered by it. you can't do anything. If God's chosen you, He'll work in you. You'll believe in the right time. Don't even ask the question. I don't think the Holy Spirit made any mistakes. Do you? God is at work in people. The Lord, by his grace, is convicting them of their need to be right with God. And it's a very natural thing to say, What what must I do to be saved? Now, to that, though, (laughs) Jesus gives the most important work. Jesus answered them. He doesn't doesn't make fun of them, doesn't rebuke them. He tells them the truth. This is the truth work of God, as if there's no other. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's the most important work for every man, woman, boy and girl. It's the most important work for me, most important work for you to believe in Christ whom God the Father sent. And and the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, would put this in a little different way, but equally powerful, in his first letter. You have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John 3 and verse 23. He's speaking about the commandments, doing the commandments of God. And he says in 1st John 3 and verse 23, this is his commandment, as if there's no other, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. What's he saying? First and greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. What's the heart of the first commandment? It's to believe in Christ if you are going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, you need to know him. And the way you know him is not as an abstraction, but in Christ who's made known in the scriptures. And you know him personally, and you know him deeply. That's the most important work. A writer of Hebrews, he says in in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, we often quote part of it, but not all of it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, in this great chapter about faith, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that writer is, says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to believe him. For whoever would draw near to God, that's, that's the effect of faith, and it's the desire that's there, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that? Again, a lot of people don't like, well, rewards, how can we get rewards if everything is of grace? God honors himself by rewarding the obedience that he works in us. He rewards you when you seek him. He brings his blessing when you seek him, which is why you do seek him. So there's the promise of God. Paul would speak of Romans 3 in verse 27, the law of faith. Faith is a faith in Christ. Or if you look at it this way, you say, I want I want a beautiful flower. Well, to have a beautiful flower, yeah, there has to be, certainly there has to be soil. There has to be something that is nutritious in which that flower grows. But you've got to have a root. You've got to have a tap root, which is the main root from which the little, fi- the little spindly other roots come, a tap root that goes into the soil and that gets that nourishment, the phosphorus and the phosphate and the nitrogen and all of these things that come. That root has to get those things. Your taproot, folks, is faith and the soil is Christ. That's that's where it must be. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Where's the taproot of your faith? It's always going to be in a person or persons and works. All faith ultimately goes to a person or person and works. You can study comparative religion this way. Here's the popular way it goes. I have my faith in myself. I'm a self-made man. What have you got? Well, clearly there's faith in a person, self. And there's faith in works. I'm a self-made man. All faith goes back to a person or persons. It works. What's the taproot of your faith to be in? A person. His name is Jesus. And works. His works. And that's why faith, folks, real faith is surrender. It's surrendering all those other trusts in person and works and surrendering to Christ himself. Okay, so, so again, what's the taproot of your faith? Jesus says, you've got to get to this. The commandment is that you believe in him whom he has sent. But here's the question. Why? In our culture today, you can say this, and frankly, people will shrug their shoulders. doesn't make much difference. They might say, "Good God, that's important to you. Or it's good that we believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in something. And, and our culture will, will kind of go along with you in this, almost like in a Hindu culture where there's belief in a lot of different gods. And in itself, other than the exclusiveness of this, that can be accepted by people. But I want you to think with me of what is either amazing arrogance or amazing honest reality. This is Jesus who says... You want to do the work of God? There's only one way you can do it. It's by believing in me. That's either incredible arrogance. Can can you imagine somebody, you're on the street, on Jericho Turnpike, and somebody comes up to you and says, I've got to tell you a message. You believe in me, and you have everlasting life. And you look at this person and wonder why the person is not in an asylum because only crazy people would say something like that unless it's honest reality because you're God. And here's one of the evidences, the seal that God has put on the sun is that he can say this because he is God and it's true. But anyway, why, why is this true? How do you connect this message with our unbelieving culture, or let me put it this way, how do you connect this with our Labor Day culture in which people labor for anything except the greatest work of God? How do you connect with people? I'd suggest four ways. There's others, but I think these catch most of it. You get honest with this text... And you're finally dealing with the most important... I hate to use this noun, but I don't know a better one for it, even though I don't like this one. But you are finally dealing with the most important thing, the most important entity, the most important substance, the most important essence. You're finally dealing with the most important thing in the universe. Because you're finally dealing with God. Imagine if the Discovery Channel, that has so many fascinating things in it, flipped and went from the creatures that it discovers to the creator of those creatures. What a difference. What a difference that would make, right? And so to believe in Jesus is to finally deal with the most important thing, quote-unquote, in the universe, or let me put it this way. Not to learn about Jesus and believe in him, because to believe in him, you've got to learn something about him. Not to learn something about Jesus and believe in him is like trying to learn literature without knowing the alphabet. I mean, you could imagine if, if you're, you're teaching, you're beginning to teach on the elementary level, and it's uh, first grade, and you're looking at what your curriculum is, and the teacher says, "Well, we'll start them out with Beowulf, those old Norse legends." So let's say, "Well, well uh, I got a first grader; they don't they don't know how to read yet." Oh, okay. Well, let's do something simpler. How about uh, how about Aesop's fables? Let's start to teach them Aesop's fables. And then, uh, well, wait a minute; they can't read Aesop's fables because they don't know the alphabet. No, no, don't worry about the learning the alphabet. Um, do something even simpler. You can start them out with some nursery rhymes. How they got to read the nursery rhymes. No, 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 don't understand. They can't read the nursery rhymes unless they know how to read. And in order to read, you've got to know the alphabet. And if that teacher continued to push teaching literature, well, you know right away that ends up an insanity. To read, you have to know the alphabet. In order to read the world and yourself, you've got to know Christ because He is the way and He is the truth and He is the life. So, so when you start dealing with Jesus, you're finally dealing with the most important, and I guarantee you, you can't come up with a better word, Jesus is not a thing in the abstraction, but the most important substance, the most important essence, the most important being, the most important thing in the universe. But but there's a second reason why this is so important. Remember, everybody's got faith. An atheist has faith that there's no God. That's the way you present it to them. An agnostic has faith that he or she can't know if there's a God. Okay, so there's this, a faith commitment in all religions. This belief in Christ replaces all wrong or false faith with right faith right if everybody believes in something but that something is horizontal and it's basically not a faith that's going to save you well then then they have to replace that by believing in God himself as he's made known and here again simple illustration a person is sick a person is deathly sick and and you have medicine that will surely make this person well. That's what Jesus is, as the one who gives life. And, and, and you say, yeah, look, I've got this medicine. No, 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 I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need that. I'm drinking a lot of salt water in order to make my system more antiseptic. And I go, well, he says, well don't drink salt water. You're going to kill yourself. But they continue to do that. Or they say, no, I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to eat some sand. That sand will be good. It's hot. It's grainy. It'll make me, it'll take all these impurities. He said, no, no, don't do that. You've got to give up this eating of the sand and take the medicine that's before you, or they're drinking poison. And all of those false medicines. That's what idolatry is. That's what anything other than Christ is. And in telling people this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, and you're calling for surrender. You're saying give up the faults and the wrong faiths for the true and very, very important. Number three, this is really what brings real transformation. What, what is faith? Faith, brothers and sisters, is a hand. And it, it takes something, in this case someone, and it Brings that one to yourself, and, and there's where the language of the senses does come in. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right, he, His fragrance is as myrrh and as aloes, and so the the taste and the smell. Whose hands we touched concerning the word of life, whose word we heard concerning the word of life, and faith takes that one to yourself so that all Christ is ministers to you in all that you are. And that bringing that one to yourself transforms you because the Bible says it makes you one with him. You so take him to yourself that you are united to him in what is really a marriage. And what does that do? Well, number one, your guilt is taken away. His cross, by his cross, this one with whom I'm one, he took the punishment for my sin. So I don't bear that punishment. He, he provided a perfect righteousness. He perfectly obeyed the law for me, and he gives that to me. That's what we call justification. We're declared righteous by faith alone and in Christ alone. And he, and he, he went to death and disarmed the power of the evil one, to deceive and to slander and to destroy because Jesus was himself destroyed on the cross and yet he rose from the dead and he's the great liberator. He liberates you from the bondage of that one who brings you into slavery. That's a powerful, powerful thing that Christ does. The, the flip side of that coin is if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed, otherwise in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. It brings that transformation. It brings the transformation of a new power to live because the Lord Jesus, who's married to you, says, well, my greatest gift that I give to my bride is the Holy Spirit. And so I give him to you. I've not only given him to you to change your heart, but I give him to you to give you foretastes of heaven and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The down payment of the Spirit is yours. And you begin to think differently. Your priorities are different. Your focus now is on the Sermon on the Mount. It's what you are you you know what sin is, but you know that you're delivered from it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know that you're in a world that has so much sadness in it, but the Lord Jesus has overcome death. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now you are in a world of so much strife, so much animosity, so much warfare on every level. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God, and you live out of the reconciliation of Jesus. Did you see it, folks? Do you see this is what mere horizontal religion, horizontal religion, can turn you to some of the caverns of the religion of this life. but Christ opens up the heaven of everlasting life to you. And even beyond that, if you can put it like that, you have a calling. Your whole life is shifted to what we call being captive to the kingdom of God, which means what? I want to see the same grace, the same power, the same love that entered into me and overcame me and made me a new creature. I want to see that done for everybody around me. That's that's the kingdom of God that you want. And you're, you're captivated with that. Or if I can put it in the very big picture, and this is this is really kind of a wow thing, You enter into the world, the new world, the new creation that Jesus brought in by his coming into the world, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, and by his reign. From the time all this cluster of things happened in history and God began to change the Saul's and God began to change the Philippian jailers, and God began to change the Lydia's, God began to change the Timothy's, and all these characters that you read of in the New Testament, guess what? Through them, God began to change the whole world. Because wherever Christians are, their influence by the Holy Spirit makes everything very, very different. That's a phenomenal study for another day. But that's the point. That's why faith in Christ as the most important work is in fact the most important work and and uh, for for labor day it's it's interesting that this has been commented on you realize in Christ you have a certain independence from health and affliction you have a certain independence from sickness and health, riches and poverty. You have a certain independence from the down things and the up things. Why? Because your God works all things together for your good. And you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because Labor Day, people think about their 401Ks, and people think about whether they're going to have their work for another week or not, or whether they're going to be replaced by AI. <laughs> that shouldn't bother you one bit, because you have Christ, and he has all things. So, so, so anyway, that's why, that's why that's so important. Let me, let me wrap this up this way. And it really is a sobering way to think. And I want us to be sobered. Labor Day is a celebration of work. That in itself is a good thing. What's the most important work? It's to believe in Christ. It's to realize that what's most important is not my house, not my car, not my country club, not my investments, but Christ, because he's God. And so I believe in him, and yes, you labor for him. You, you, you strive, and you run, and you work, and all of your works are connected with him. And Jesus connects that very freely in his honest boldness with the fact that this is everlasting life. Only in Christ is there everlasting life. you're a Long Islander or any other place. And you don't think like that. You labor. You're a self-made person. And you acquire this and that and the other thing. And you have Labor Day to reflect on it. And then you die. The bumper sticker. He... Who dies with the most toys wins. Get your tissue box out if that's the way you live. He who dies living only for his own works and success and toys dies forever. I know Long Islanders don't like that. You may not like that. But that's what Jesus teaches. And that's why the most important work is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the taproot for everything else. Folks, don't live a suicidal life. The way most people in our area are living right now let's pray our lord it is so sobering for us and it's meant to be uh, that on this labor day as we think about work we think about work in the way jesus taught us to think about work not meritorious works of which we had none but rather The way we spend our lives, where we put our faith, where our hearts are. Lord, remind us that if we spend our lives and we give our hearts only to the horizontal things that are around us, and we can fill in the blank with what that is, we'll not only be missing the most important of works but we'll be destroying ourselves. Lord, make life and everlasting life, the desire for it, the labors for it, to be the most precious things to us, because they are things of the altogether lovely one, Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Amen.